and thank you for listening to Let the Right Fashion In. I am your host, Tyler Hannon, with a really stylish wash. With a really stylish God wash. Damn it. Fashioned <laughs> over my sleeves because I really like to just trap all that heat in on my left arm. With me today is my co-host, as always, uh, Catman Scruthers. <laughs> she is wearing a beautiful uh, overalls dress over a sweat or over a turtleneck with some very furry boots. Uh, Kayla, yes. what the fuck are you wearing? Uh, you know, I just whatever the wardrobe department gives me, I put on. Apparently, <laughs> I also have some weird like leg warmer things on too. <laughs> And with us today again is Gay Bacons, who is wearing a really chill Apollo 11 NASA hand hand knit sweatshirt. I'm pretty sure sweater. Hand knit. Hand knit, especially for you. Someone made that sweater for some reason, and it's probably because Kubrick faked the moon landing. Exactly. Most likely, that is the explanation. Because we have never actually been to space. Never ever. Before we don't go to space, though, we need to talk about some things we've watched recently with fashion that pales in comparison, but, you know, it's okay nonetheless. Gabe, have you watched anything ever? I have watched some things sometimes. Okay. Uh, I just recently restarted uh, Parks and Rec. Yes! <laughs> which, oh, is a, which is always an amazing show, but... Oh my god, I forgot that Mark Brandanowitz is the fucking worst. Yo, I feel super compelled to tell you because I tweeted at you about this. My phone autocorrects Brandanowitz to all caps. That's fantastic. <laughs> See you never, Brandanowitz. I hate him. Like He's so hon- pointless. <laughs> honestly, like it's just amazing the quality jump that happened between season one and season two of that show. Because season one of Parks and Rec is honestly not that good it's because they were trying specifically to be an office spinoff and then they decided that they were actually just going to do their own thing and thus gave us the greatest show that's ever existed exactly like smart over enthusiastic leslie is much better than dumb boss leslie it's yes it's miles ahead i love everything about i'd say it's streets ahead (laughs) (laughs) because i'm gonna stand for community in this corner over here I mean, you're free to do that. <laughs> just we, give it a movie. All, just give just, it a movie. We all just love us some sitcoms over here. Six <laughs> seasons in a movie. But I guess but anyway. Parks and Rec is a pretty okay show. That Where are you at in Parks and Rec right now, Gabe? I'm like halfway through season two. Oh, good. They're actually, it's funny because like season two actually has some of my favorite standalone episodes. Um... I believe, oh, no, flu season is season three. Never mind, I lied. But the Halloween episode with uh, Greg Pakaitis. Yes. It's <laughs> my fave. Kayla, uh, so- tell the uh, tell the wonderful listening audience, how many times have you rewatched Parks and Recreation in, in its entirety? That is a question I actually don't know the answer to. Because it's so many times that you've lost count? Uh, because I pretty much am always constantly rewatching it. Like, I'll just, like, pick it. Like, if I can't decide what to watch, I'll just watch some of Parks and Rec. I, I just got past the episode with the really terrible mural uh, <laughs> called A Lively Fisting, and I had to stop the episode <laughs> because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> 
that? No. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Hold on, hold Re- on. Refresh hold on. my memory of this. That's not the one where Jerry accidentally paints Leslie naked, is it? No, it's the one uh, where I don't like. I don't remember who comes in to visit the parks department, but it, like one of the murals is like a fist fight between like some like <laughs> old settler and like uh-huh. some, <laughs> and then like a they say like a widow, <laughs> a widow of like. And a mother of seven. And they said, okay. yes, the original title of this it was A Lively Fisting. <laughs> All right. I remember that. It's been a long time since I've seen season two, honestly. But yes, <laughs> all of Parks and Rec is perfect. I cannot ever enough tell people to watch it. <laughs> Anything else you've been watching or any further Parks and Rec points that you want to make? Because we can keep talking about Parks and Rec. I'm all in. I mean, we could we could spend all day talking about Parks and Rec. You're not wrong. But. <laughs> Mostly uh, Adam Scott's the... <laughs> face and the calzones that portrayed him. And Ice Town. <laughs> anyway, Gabe, what else have you been watching? Uh, for a wild tonal shift in things that I watched, I just recently got around to watching Beasts of No Nation. <laughs> and <Jesus>. wow, <laughs> that, that is a heartbreaking movie. I love Amy Poehler's <laughs> role in that movie. It's great. Yeah, like I. I had heard fantastic things about it and I had just managed to get around to, to it. And obviously, uh, Carrie Fukunawa did a pretty good job with season one of true detective. And yeah, like it's a super well done movie, but the entire time I'm like, Oh, Oh my God, this, <laughs> everything hurts. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of also how I would describe true detective season one. So it looks like he's staying on point. Honestly, I loved True Detective season one, but season two was a huge disaster, and I probably will never watch it again. So, are they even going to do a season three? Yes, but oh wait, well, you're getting a different Nick Pizzolatto show first. Like he's Ugh. doing a different show for HBO first before you get True Detective. They're season just trying three. to like milk that well as long as they can before everyone turns on him forever. Who who is the worst like? plausible possible pairing for season three like of actors in the world yeah god um like who is due to just do something really gritty and really bad oh wait has vincent d'onofrio done anything lately yes he's vincent d'onofrio was like the villain in daredevil season one it was really good in it and he was kind of in season two yeah, I mean, he was too, too. Yeah, he was I actually. I haven't watched Daredevil. Uh, so I say Wilmer Valderrama. <laughs> I don't know. Who and. Is. Oh my god. Fez from that 70s show. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to do something now that he and Demi Lovato broke up. That's what I'm saying. I think it should be him is and Demi Lovato. I, yeah, Wilmer Valderrama and Demi Lovato. No, wait, season three wait, of True Detective. Wait, Wilmer is Fez? Yes. I literally, okay, I saw his name and I was like, they've been dating for six years and I've never heard of them being Hold a couple. Hold on. Wilmer Valderrama and Macaulay Culkin. Oh my God. Macaulay Culkin and Naya Rivera from Glee. Why? Because <laughs> Naya Rivera starred in like a really bad horror movie, so she's due to do something like serious and gritty. <laughs> These are all fantastic options, and I think we need to forward this to HBO. <laughs> what about the guy that plays Pedro in Napoleon Dynamite? What's he doing these days? Oh, wait. John Heater 
and oh god john heater um, that is a good on. one john heater oh, Ashton what Kutcher. if andy samberg did it <laughs> andy samberg <laughs> no because i'd actually watch that i'd actually watch that um no no you know what ashton kutcher and no, he just did the steve jobs movie that was his gritty serious thing for the next like five years what, Jim Zach Carey? Efron. Zach Efron <laughs> is due for something none like of the, terrible. Zephron. None of these are as good as Will the Rama and McCulkin. You're you're not wrong. I those are pretty good ones. Thank you. Mila Kunis and Macaulay Culkin, because we want to make things awkward. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, maybe <laughs> that was a fun rabbit hole. How did we get here? <laughs> yeah. Where uh, did we go? See, you don't get like <laughs> references. So I mean, I fair. could. There's a Paramore song I could sing right now, but I won't. No, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Paranor- Paramore has no place here. They have a song with the pa- lyric, "How did we get Paramore here?" Paramore. No, but Buffy is a television show, and we were just speaking about television shows. And his lyric, Haley Williams. Haley Williams was on The Talking Dead, which is a TV after show for The Walking Dead. Oh Therefore my God, are you repping the wa- The Talking Dead right now? No, I'm saying that Haley Williams you don't counts even watch, as a TV person. You don't even watch The Walking Dead, and you're rep- repping The Talking. No, Dead. No, I'm repping Haley Williams. You're repping The Talking Dead. You said the words "The Talking Dead" on this podcast, yeah, and for me. that, I will never forgive you. Oh my God. C- confirm, Kayla is a complete you. Chris Hardwick stand. Yeah. Ew, God, no. Kayla loves Chris Hardwick. Uh, do you know that At Midnight is like literally the least funny thing ever, and I don't understand why everybody thinks it's so funny? <laughs> because you can hashtag it and be involved in the conversation, and you, know, yeah. you feel like contributing Every single week, my entire Twitter feed is people posting unfunny jokes, and then the least funny joke wins every week anyway. Man, you just subtweeted many of your friends hard. Yes, and they <laughs> deserved it. I'm here for it. <laughs> God, well... I don't even know where to go from here. <laughs> Kayla, do I dare ask you what you've watched recently? So that's what I watched. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, I'm sorry, Gabe. We just hijacked your entire section with bullshit. Feel free to do the same <laughs> to my section as I feel like. So uh, I am going to talk about Hail Caesar, first of all, which I feel has the potential to be super like <laughs> derailed. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so funny enough, I actually saw Hail Caesar when it was in theaters with my friend Ramia. And I think it is pretty funny. I don't, I think its strong point is in its characters because the plot is honestly pretty tenuous and like not very coherent at times. And I don't know. But the thing that I didn't like about it as much is I feel like a lot of the scenes kind of drag. Like it'll start out funny and entertaining, and then like 10 minutes later, it's still happening. Like, I don't know. Uh, Tyler, you watched it. I don't Gabe, have you seen it? I have not seen it. So Would that it were so simple. That one was, okay, that one was fine. That one was all right. The one that really bugged me was the Channing Tatum, like, sailor tap dancing musical number. I just feel like that. I thought was, you liked homoerotic subtext. I do, but it just went on for too long. Like, it lost its charm halfway through, and if there's anything worse. I'm sorry. Did you just say that tap dancing Channing Tatum lost his charm? Yeah. Are you even American? I mean, in the movie, he's a Russian communist, so, like, I don't... <laughs> I, I really enjoy that Tilda Swinton's twin sisters, who got maybe two minutes combined in the movie. <laughs> I find that very fun. Uh, George Clooney, as an airhead in uh, in Cohen movies, is always great, because Burn After Reading is 
so underrated. I, it makes me mad. I hate burn after reading personally. What is why? We've talked about why this. does everyone well, I, hate burn after reading? I, I like burn after reading. Everyone hates burn after reading, Gabe. It's it's a bad movie. That's why. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't. Coen why brothers, does everyone the Coen hate that movie? Are actually really hit or miss for me, and, and I feel like Hail Caesar was like actually <laughs> firmly in the middle of hitting and missing because there was a lot of things that I liked about it and a lot of things I didn't like about it. Most fascinating of all, actually, I think it's interesting that they chose to use Eddie Mannix when he was, in fact, a real person. But, like, <laughs> they made him way cuter and nicer. It is a really weird pastiche of real human beings and He's the imagined only one. manic things. Like, know? it's weird because, like, I feel like they could have just named him anything else. Yeah. And, like, everyone would have known that he was an homage to Eddie Mannix without actually calling him Eddie Mannix mm-hmm. because, like, I haven't done a lot of research into this, but I kind of feel like the real life one was kind of low key a gangster who like probably murdered some people to cover some shit up for MGM. Uh, yes, so, that's casual. Like, <laughs> I feel like making him like a completely sympathetic family man who just is like trying to do his job is maybe a little on not on the nose. Honestly, Josh Brolin's all right, but I am never that interested in him as the main character. See okay. Sicario. What about the greatest movie of all time that oh, Josh Brolin has ever starred in? What is this W? Jonah Hex. Oh god. Uh, oh god. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Get out of the mattress fort right now. <laughs> the mattress fort. It's it's a mattress fort today and you have to leave. I was just kidding. No, you weren't. It's too late. <laughs> anyway. Um It's a very gifable trailer, by the way. Hail Caesar. Yeah, there's like a lot of. That was the thing I was kind of bummed that we watched it uh, like on DVD instead of Blu ray. Because in theaters, like the color palette and everything in that movie is really awesome. And some of the stuff that they do with the camera is really interesting. And I think that HD is definitely the best way to watch it. I mean, HD is probably the best way to watch everything. (laughs) But like, (laughs) in particular, like, you know how there are some movies where it's like, ah, like, this is what Blu ray was made for. And like other movies, you're kind of like, it probably wasn't that big of a deal to have this on Blu ray. The other thing that I watched this week, Tyler and I had the immense pleasure of finally, finally, after a thousand years of anguish. Exactly 1,000 years. Seeing the lobster, Mm -hmm. which it's okay. So I guess the best way to sum this up, about halfway through the movie, I was having the thought that, well, I liked Yorgos. Yorgos Lanthimos. Thank you. Just cut this out. Well, I was thinking that Yorgos Lanthimos' his first movie. Cut this out. I'm about to nail this name. What is the possession of Lanthimos? Anyway, uh, his first movie, Dogtooth, was like very super gruesome in a lot of ways. So about halfway through the movie, I was having this grand thought that wow, this is everything that I liked about Dogtooth in a much less brutal and horrible manner. And then somebody violently kicked an animal to death. And we saw it. Dead. And I was like, oh yeah, just kidding. This guy personally wants me to suffer. So this movie is legitimately one of the funniest movies I've seen recently. Yes. Along with like, the nice guys. Uh, it's got tremendous visuals. Like it, He's just... A, beautiful visual director but the way he nails all of this absurdist comedy is really incredible and while none of it should be laugh out loud funny 
it had the entire small crowd roaring several times because it is hilarious. Yeah, and I think also a lot of that is to the credit of the actors and actresses because everybody speaks with such like a clipped, it's, awkward cadence. It's so good to watch Colin Farrell in a good movie. Uh. Speaking of True Detective season two, <laughs> it is so good mustache, to see Colin Farrell in a good movie. It's like, well, I had to put up with. It's like we had In Bruges and like part of Seven Psychopaths, and that was it. And it's uh, just... he was in a movie with Karen Knightley that I liked called London Boulevard. It's not like amazing, sure, by any standard. But Absolutely, it's, it's fun. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think that it. I wouldn't call it a fun movie, but it is very awkwardly darkly humorous your ghost lanthimos has some of the most horrifying moments in non-horror movies that i've ever seen and i can't help but fantasize about the horror movie that he could make but probably never will we should start a petition i'm like I, i'm like i kind of want him to make a horror movie because he'd be really good at it but it almost it's almost better this way i feel like it would be so macabre that i would have nightmares for the rest of my life <laughs> honestly just it might I- be more upsetting than the witch that that would be impressive, mm. but also believable. He's yeah. He has. Have you, Gabe, have you seen Dogtooth? Yeah, I have. Well, all right. Well, then you know what's up. <laughs> part part of what yeah. makes those moments so jarring is because they're surrounded by these funny comedy moments. Although yeah. it's very dark throughout. It has the it has the levity that was definitely missing from Dogtooth. Did you now? Did you think it was like this doom and gloom partnership? Like partnerships and marriages are doomed forever thing because i just kind of thought it was a kind of insightful uh absurdist look at partnerships you know honestly that doesn't necessarily condemn them but kind of points out the absurd like the how preposterous it can be i legitimately never even thought to apply any of what happened in that movie to like real world situations because it's so absurd that I think I don't know. I feel like it's almost a disservice to spend time trying to like dig for the the hidden meaning or whatever because I don't really think there is any. I think I mean there probably is, but for me, <laughs> it's just kind of this movie that exists. Like this is how this world is, and this is what is happening, and you are getting this glance into it, and it is terrifying and weirdly funny to you. And also, no matter what we say, the best review ever of this movie is the fir- the first three sentences. Of David Ehrlich's letterbox review. It's really good. What did he say? I've never read this. Uh, if I had to choose an animal, I'd be a tortoise so I could watch this movie for 150 years. <laughs> roughly, par- <laughs> nice. roughly paraphrase. But <laughs> do we know? Do we have thoughts on what animals we would be? Or is that too much of a conversation for right now in the It's podcast? the only conversation that can ever really be had. Um, I do like the idea of a tortoise. I think that would be a really chill lifestyle. I saw, I've seen Finding Nemo several times, and it seems like a fun life, you know, <laughs> just riding the stream. I think I'd want to be a horse mostly because I super respect and love horses. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I feel like that would also probably end up being an irresponsible decision that would bite me in the ass someday. <laughs> Likely. Ooh, what about a shark? No. Ah, too bloody. No. Also, sharks I feel like a hawk too. or like an eagle would be cool. Like Ooh. really anything that can fly. Oh, flying. Good yeah. choice. Yeah, flying is pretty important. You know, some say that the most dangerous animal is man. <laughs> How funny oh. would that be if you like were like, wow. I would like to be turned into a different person? <laughs> like, would, would, we are would they just be like, 
fuck, like, I guess that's an option. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that sort of makes sense. Like, (laughs) damn, you played the system. (laughs) All right, anyway, moving on. Tyler, what have you seen recently? Well, I also saw Hail Caesar, but we already spoke on that. (laughs) We already saw both of the I already saw The Lobster, but I already raved about that. So I'm going to speak on two pretty mixed horror anthologies I've seen recently. Because I've just been really diving into the 2016 indie horror. As you know, Tyler and I celebrate Halloween literally all year round because we are schlubs. It is only four months until October. Oh my god. Y'all. We started in August last year, so we're actually, actually no, wait a minute. I think we watched Rocky Horror in June or July last year and kicked off our Halloween celebration. We're the worst. It never stops and we're the best. We are literally terrible. Anyway, continue. The first one I watched is Holidays, which is an anthology series about holidays featuring uh, Kevin Smith is one of the filmmakers in it and a number of other notable people. Seth Green is an actor in it. Um, It's well, okay. So there are a handful of notable names and then a bunch of people that are kind of notable. that Most people haven't heard of, including me. Uh, It is a mixed bag. Some of the, some of the stories really go for it. I don't want to spoil it too much, but Jesus Christ Easter Bunny was not much of an actual story, but the visual of Jesus Christ Easter Bunny will never leave my brain now. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Smith once again casts his daughter, is working with his daughter in a movie, so it's very obvious which one is his if you saw Tusk, which actually not many people saw Tusk. Uh, I thought it was kind of hit or miss, uh, worth a few fun moments when you realize just how much they're going for it. The most worthy one for me was Father's Day starring Jocelyn Donahue. It's some incredible atmosphere. She's in a thing. Yes, she's the uh she's the woman from the House of uh House of the Devil, Ty West's masterpiece. Uh she's she's really good in the short Father's Day. I really enjoyed the atmosphere of it and I thought that was the most worthwhile one. Uh, the others are okay to very bland. For an anthology series that misses even more than holidays, there's Tales of Halloween. I was pretty disappointed because I was told that it's a really fun Halloween watch and to check it out. There are some good things in it, but for the most part, it's not even B-level. There's some like terrible animation. It's just kind of trash. <laughs> Like it's kind of fun. It's fun in parts, but God, I was really disappointed by it. I've seen another, a number of other more impressive horror movies, anthology movies. I'd rather just watch Trick or Treat several more times. Uh, Are we ever getting Trick or Treat too? Yes, I believe that's this year. Holiday is worth checking out for a couple of them. The Christmas one's fun, and Father's Day is good. Uh, Tales of Halloween I would not recommend. Just watch Trick or Treat again, or check out Krampus, as Kayla will be doing later this very day. Maybe tomorrow I might fall asleep. And the Trick or Treat sequel is coming as well. Uh, But that is my recently watched. I could have talked about The Ones Below. That was pretty cool. I rewatched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a fun movie. And I rewatched Kill List, which is pretty much a masterpiece but i think it's fitting that we talk about all this horror as we uh this week we're talking about the shining mom yeah do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter sure i do 
Yeah, I guess so. For some people, uh, solitude and isolation can of itself become a problem. The Shining is kind of a famous movie that you may have possibly heard of. It is currently at number 59 on the IMDb 250, as is the IMDb 250's want. It came out in 1980, a film from uh, some schmuck named Stanley Kubrick, based on a novel by uh, Steve King, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd. Has Dan Lloyd done anything since? Nope. Not no. like he retired like two I checked the other day. <laughs> All right. Danny, starring some little child he's as a, well as he's a teacher now. As well as owner of the greatest name in the world, Scatman Crothers. Just a name. Just a name. The name. So <laughs> just a great name. All right. So The Shining actually came out on May twenty third in nineteen eighty, which is an interesting day for a horror movie, even now as we have The Conjuring 2 coming out on June. Where does it come out? What well, was it trying to be like June a Halloween 10th. horror movie or like a block a summer blockbuster scary movie? Uh, the it's, question, I, guess. I mean, May 23rd definitely seems like a summer blockbuster horror movie, I gotta say. It cost $19 million to make, but it made $44 million, making it one of those. Uh, movies that has kind of a cult movie status but was actually very popular and you know people generally loved almost all that's domestic total too so the shining today is considered one of the best horror movies of all time by many people uh it is dissected to hell it has several documentaries and video series dedicated to it most notably room 237 because, Jesus Christ, people are obsessed with this movie and Stanley Kubrick. It's hilarious. <laughs> I'm about to make so many podcast enemies. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's about to go down. Our Twitter mentions are about to be awful. <laughs> I'm going to leave with a positive. This is yet another movie that Kayla and I first experienced together. And Wait. as part of our Halloween celebration many, many years ago. I'd actually seen it before that. Well... That was the first time I saw it and appreciated it. Anyway, I did not love this movie the first time I saw it, and I still do not love it. I will say there is a certain divide with this movie between those who love Stanley Kubrick and those who love Stephen King, it seems like. Uh, That said, it is visually one of the most impressive horror movies I've ever seen. I can't help but think that James Wan must take some inspiration from Stanley Kubrick with some of the active camera movements he does. There are some really impressive long shots in this movie, and he makes tremendous use of the setting. That hotel is creepy as fuck, and you really get to know its nonsensical winding patterns. Most 
there are three shots that really stuck out to me. There's the one where it go. It's kind of a pretty standard long take following him as he goes to the interview. There's the long dolly shot that follows them on the tour. But my favorite shot of the whole movie is probably when it shows him looking at the model. It shows Jack Nicholson looking at the model of the maze, switches to an overhead view of the actual hedge maze, and then follows Shelley Duvall and uh, Dan Danny Lloyd's char- characters as they go through the maze. I thought that was a brilliant transition, and visually, it's a pretty incredible movie. Kayla! Uh, so, my actual first experience with this movie... Um, uh, when I was, like, 14, I was an embarrassing, like, mall goth. And Perfect. <laughs> as you may or may not know, Jared Leto's band, 30 Seconds to Mars, <laughs> has a music video that basically is The Shining in music video form. It is a direct homage, and they do a lot of the things that happen in the movie in the music video. And I think I showed it to my mom or something because I was like, this is really interesting. And she's like, you fool. This is a movie. (laughs) And uh, my grandma is actually a huge Stephen King fan. Like, my grandma loves Stephen King probably more than anything in the world. Like, (laughs) it is unreal. So as soon as I mentioned even, like, a fleeting interest in Stephen King, she, like, had the movie ready to go. She rented it. She got a bunch of books from the library for me that were all Stephen King and all this stuff. Because if you love Stephen King, The Shining, The the movie adaptation of The Shining is the best place to start. Well, she got me the book. Oh, okay. But we watched the movie first because I was interested because of the music video. But yeah, so when I was like 14, I watched this movie with my grandma and then I promptly had nightmares for like two weeks. And it's funny because like rewatching it, I've, I've rewatched it a few times over the years since then. And I, I don't really feel like it's jump scary the way that I did when I first saw it. And I gave, I mean, I guess that's just like probably part of growing older and watching a lot more horror movies and having a better idea of like the conventions of horror but I do still feel that it is probably one of those movies that's really good at conveying a sense of dread, which is one of my all-time favorite hallmarks of a horror movie. So, like, I don't know. I have a lot of very negative feelings about Stanley Kubrick and a lot a lot of, like, the changes that he made to the story from the book. But as a film, like, without considering the book and all of that, it I mean, it is a, a great film, like, visually and story-wise. It, it, it's really good at a couple of things. Yeah. I don't know. Gabe, what was your first experience with it? Uh, I, I, I'm I a movie scrub, so <laughs> I first saw this movie like four days ago. Preparing oh, for this podcast. You, you picked this movie. I thought it was like, okay. Why wow. did you, yeah, why did so you pick I this? I watched it for the first time. Like, Well, I, I had just, I got the book for Christmas and I read the book. And I really enjoyed the book, so I decided, like, oh, I should probably, you know, watch this super famous movie. <laughs> and you are promptly disappointed. No, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, like, I agree with you. Like, watching it, like, now after having watched, like, a ton of horror movies, it's not super, like, jump scary or, like, anything like that. But it is, I agree with you. It's very much a, a good case study in building tension throughout a movie. Mm-hmm. And 
you can definitely see the influence that other like psychological horror kind of took from that because it seems like that like i mean obviously stanley kubrick's movies are all fucking insane (laughs) what (laughs) yeah it's a shocking news i know i don't know what to do with this But the yeah, IMDb so 250 particularly <laughs> takes umbrage as it's a big fan of everything he's ever done. Wow, I'm shocked. <laughs> anyway, continuing. <laughs> but yeah, I what I noticed the most of anything is how much, and you kind of touched on it, how much the actual set kind of plays a part in the movie. Like some of the theories, which we can get into uh, later, but have a lot to do with like how the hotel is set up. And even if you don't like necessarily buy into those theories, like just like the complete clash of styles in the different rooms and areas, I think definitely lends like this uneasy feeling because you can never really get a good sense of where anything is in relation to anything else. Yeah. Honestly, the the wallpaper and the paints and the carpets are just as weird and clashing as many of Shelley Duvall's outfits are. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it. This entire movie was de- uh, created by a child, clearly. I, yeah. I think the, the the uneasiness of the setting is kind of like the one, like, it's, it's pretty well known that Stanley Kubrick basically thinks that Stephen King is a hack author. What? And very much felt that he was doing him a favor and improving upon his story which I don't agree with at all, but I think that the uneasiness of the setting is kind of the one holdover from the book where in the book the hotel is very much like a presence. It is a character in a way. And while that isn't quite the case in the movie, I think that that lends to it. I I, I have particular feelings about all of like the conspiracy theories about this movie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mainly that as crazy as Stanley Kubrick is, I feel that his craziness is lent only to obsessive reshooting and perfectionism, not a myriad... We faked the moon landing. <laughs> that, and also, I just, the whole, like, the I haven't seen Room 237, but I've read about it here and there, and I just, I'm sorry, there's just not that much in this movie. There just isn't. <laughs> like, it's a pretty cut and dry, straightforward story, and that's kind of where it's super deviates from the book i think in which like it has this very different narrative where it's just a dude that doesn't like his family goes nuts and tries to kill them because he was secretly always a part of the hotel right and i think the book is much more like overtly supernatural yeah, and I think it's funny because the, the movie Conspiracy Theories very much revolve around the fact that it's supposed to be like this Native American burial ground and everything, but there's pretty much nothing in the movie that really lends to a supernatural thing, I don't think. It's pretty much like we have like this vague concept of shining and we have a couple of weird hallucinations throughout the movie, but for the most part, uh, it's not... It's not just like overtly... Yeah, I think someone... I think it was someone in room 237 brings it up but the only thing that really can't be easily explained in the movie is at the end when the freezer door unlocks Mm -hmm. other than that you can explain everything as the three of them just going crazy 
Yeah, and I mean, I guess if you really, like, we see Wendy sleeping, so it's possible that, like, if you wanted to get really technical and try to have an explanation for something, it is possible that in her, like, fugue sleep state, she opened the freezer out of guilt or something, but, like, that, I mean, it That seems like a stretch. It, it is a stretch, but, I mean, so are lots of other things that people think about this movie. <laughs> one of the things... What? <laughs> one of the things that I really miss that I think it was not great to not include in the plot, because, like... The book has a very, like, like the hotel literally just wants him to kill Danny so that the hotel spirits or whatever you want to call it can absorb his shining power and extend its own power to, I don't know, take over the world. I haven't read the book in a little while, but it wants to use his <laughs> Basically power. Basically that. <laughs> it wants to use his power for evil, whereas in the movie it's not very clearly defined. And another, uh, uh, He just happens to have the power and it plays a part in the plot, kind of. Yeah, and, you know, the thing that really bothers me, too, is that I literally don't believe that Jack Nicholson is not completely insane, even in real Ever. life. So just like from the very get go, he just looks like he's ready to snap at any second. <laughs> it's the eyebrows. It's yeah. Even we watched <laughs> we watched like the making of documentary that Vivian Cooper did, and even out of character, just talking to her, I felt like he was gonna go nuts and murder her at <laughs> does, any moment. Does Jack Nicholson have the most expressive eyebrows in Hollywood? I think yes. <laughs> this is true, and also he just has a major case of crazy eyes. And for a character that was originally meant to be like a truly good-hearted person who loved his family but like did his best yeah and And like who got like like got kind of like possessed by the hotel in a way yeah and also like by his own demons really because the the main thing that happens is that he's struggling with alcoholism which was stephen king's own crutch for a very long time he struggled with it and it fueled a lot of his characters and a lot of his writing and the way that his story arcs play out so not only do i feel like it was remiss to not have that in the movie i feel like it's almost borderline insulting because it's the very heart of the story and i mean maybe i'm going in like too fast on like differences between the book and the movie but that's just something that super stands out to me right. i think well, that I mean, like, it's a question that I kind of pondered watching this because, I mean, there are, like, quite a few very noticeable differences, but I was kind of trying to grapple with, you know, like, like if you're adapting a book into a movie, like, how much do you owe to the book? You know what I'm saying? I think, I think there are lots of different ways to adapt stories, but I think that the most important, like, responsibility you have is to honor the spirit of the original story. And again, while I do think that Stanley Kubrick put together a great movie, it doesn't really do that. <laughs> and like right. that, honestly, throughout the years, that has been my main issue with it. Outside, like outside of any of my personal feelings on Stanley Kubrick, I just feel like he did not care. He just took something and rewrote it for himself and did whatever he wanted and changed the characters to how he felt they should be. Until Jack Nicholson to be his most Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And I mean, like, all of the casting is wrong from the get-go. Like <laughs> ridiculous as, casting. As, and, like, that's the thing, too, is, like, again, while I can't fault them because I think that Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson give, like, grade A amazing performances throughout the movie, but they're just not the characters that they were meant to be. Like, in the book, Wendy is described as, a, like, a, a privileged former cheerleader type, so not this, like, always going to pieces, subservient kind of woman. Like, she, she doesn't have this great strong backbone but she also isn't a complete coward and 
she really like finds strength and resilience and works very hard to keep her son safe throughout the course of the book. And I think that like there are flashes of that in the movie, but for the most part, she's just running around screaming hysterically and not knowing what to do. And I think that's such like, it's such a very like sign of the times kind of way to treat the only female character in the book (laughs) and, or in the movie rather. And it's frustrating. Right. And like you said, with, uh, with Jack Torrance in the book, he's kind of more of a, like an every man who's just struggling with his own problems. When Jack Nicholson is just an a, axe murderer a, from the get go, a, a fucking crazy person. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, like even we were. I actually watched it twice because I watched it and then Tyler came home and had to watch it. So I caught a lot more the second time around. I think just because I was paying attention a lot more. And just, like, from the very first scene, he just seems so irritated with his wife and son. So when he later tells three or four different characters that he loves Danny and that he would do anything for him, I find it so hard to believe that that's true in any way. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's a case of the struggle of adapting, like, a book where you can have, like, 800 pages into a two-hour movie. But, yeah, it just seems that his transformation from, like, normal dude to snapping at his wife and like writing crazy things on a typewriter like happens like in between scenes yeah (laughs) there is and it's weird because again i do feel that the movie does a great job building tension but i also feel like there are some parts of it that are rushed and i don't know if that's just due to the way jack nicholson is i was gonna say i think there are a couple moments that would allow for that to be a little more streamlined but jack nicholson Despite his best efforts, cannot sell doting, loving father very well, at and he all. doesn't at all. Because again, like in the first scene, because he's, like, he's explaining Jack cannibalism to his son. How yeah, is that a doting I, father? Like I, th- I think that like a big like misstep in it is that the tension isn't so much like if Jack is going to like fight through his demons or if he's gonna like submit to him. It's a case of when is he going to go crazy. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, like, well, that makes for a great movie. It doesn't, like, it, it it's not quite the movie that I would want, if yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I feel like, 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 if he goes crazy, it would be much more interesting than when is he going to go crazy. Yeah, because, I mean, and again, this could be a product of a lot of movies looking up to The Shining and using it as an inspiration point, but I feel like most horror movies that deal with inner demons or going crazy or being possessed are very much usually like, all right, when is this going to happen? Like, it's just like hanging over you the entire time. And it makes it hard to focus on a lot of the other really interesting stuff that's happening. So it's more refreshing, actually, when the person overcomes that looming horror. Kind of reminds me of a recent movie called The Hollow. Um, I always kind of prefer when the character is actually, in some way at least, able to overcome the... Uh, the thing that's creeping over them just because it seems more interesting than yeah they get corrupted and then they do bad things and then they either win or they lose or die in a hedge maze while screaming yeah we actually we touched on this briefly like at the end of the movie uh him just like walking around screaming is really confusing to me because it doesn't seem to line up with any of his other behavior throughout the entire movie if it were a case of, was when he has an axe and could cut through the underbrush. Yeah, and if it were a case of him trying to fight off those demons, it would make more sense. But throughout the rest of the movie, he has made absolutely zero attempt to at all try to fight against this. He just leans into it. And 
I guess part of it is the whole mythos that he has always been the caretaker and he is meant to be in the hotel and blah, blah, blah. So I guess it makes sense when you look at it from that perspective, which is probably, I guess, the perspective that Kubrick was going for. But again, walking around screaming doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I also just, I love at the end, like it, it shouldn't be funny. And maybe it's just because of how like we've seen horror movies now, just the smash cut between uh, Wendy and Danny driving away to then Jack Nicholson's frozen dead body. Like, there's no <laughs> build-up. It's just a smash cut to him, like, frozen. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, it's funny because I know that people think that Stanley Kubrick is, like, the great master of editing and takes and everything, but there are a lot of shots that, and it might just be because they're dated, but there are a lot of things that just seem really clumsy to me. Like that's a really good example. I can't remember exactly when it is, but there's a really like obnoxious tight zoom in on Danny's face at one point that just mm -hmm. feels like it's out of a super eighties horror. Oh movie. yeah. It's, it's right before he sees the twins for the first time. Like yeah. he turns, he turns around and it's like zoom in. It just, like, it super took me out because it's like, oh, yeah, we're watching a movie and there's a camera. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, a, it's a very movie thing to do. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I feel like I'm ragging on this movie a lot for something that I do claim to appreciate. <laughs> but, like, I think it's important. It's to like a technical appreciation. It's like the story, eh, I, but technically there is so much good here. That's I feel about so much of Stanley Kubrick's work. Is I appreciate like, so I feel about the record. I appreciate its influence more than I appreciate the actual thing. It's like the Beatles of horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly don't really like them can't really say i'm not happy for the things that they brought to the music but yeah i think that his greatest strength is being technically proficient but also i have so many issues with the way that kubrick treat treated his actors and his actresses i think that it, it, the constant reshoots and the actual like abuse and harassment of particularly of shelly duvall on set like we watched this documentary and at one point he literally tells the i think it is vivian that's sitting with her she's like shelly is just trying to smoke a cigarette and chill for a second he's like hey don't sympathize with her it doesn't help her she doesn't need that and she, you just see shelly like look up at him like are you fucking kidding me right now which like it, that kind of makes it even more bizarre like how well they handled like danny lloyd being in the movie like the fact that he never like saw the whole thing and like was never really exposed to more of like the horror type elements to it yeah. which is re really i think how you should treat children in horror movies Absolutely. but like that's such a weird disconnect like that was super forward thinking and then stanley kubrick treated everyone else like shit <laughs> i mean yeah i uh, i feel like he does that with all of his movies and i really it's the same thing with um What's his name that directed The Exorcist? Fuck. Uh, Peter? No. No. That's William name. Friedrich? Yeah. Where it's like you're literally torturing people and surprising them and hurting them to get an authentic... Freaking. Jesus. Freaking. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So to get like this authentic, quote unquote, reaction and it's like, this is literally their job. They are actors and actresses. Like, I know that you're a super control freak or whatever, but you kind of have to trust people to do their job. This is kind of what I talked about in Amadeus, where the guy playing Mozart would, like, mess up his lines to make F. Murray Abraham seem more confused. And I'm like, you know, at a certain point, you have to just be like, yo, I'm an actor. I can do this. I got yeah, it. Yeah, it's just, I think it's very, uh, it's, it's very condescending. Like, I don't trust you 
to do the thing that you were hired to do. So I guess I just have to like hit you in the face before we go on screen. <laughs> and it's like, it gets to the point where it's pretty well known that Shelley Duvall was grateful for the lesson, but also very adamantly stated that she would never work with him again. <laughs> Homegirl was like wandering around set with water bottles because she was so dehydrated. She couldn't cry anymore. And like, to me, that just spells one bad work environment in what universe <laughs> in any other job would that be considered okay and a great thing for your boss to do to you like and what like imagine if every day i went to my job and my boss specifically harassed me and made my life difficult and everyone was like you should be grateful for all of the great things he's taught you and for the opportunity to work with him like that's fucked up <laughs> no one else and i think it's this huge culture where we kind of let these esteemed artists get away with doing whatever they want in the name of art and we've talked about this before but it's hugely problematic and Kubrick is pretty much like person number one on my list of people who do that <laughs> yeah I have nothing to add to that other than that you're 100% correct <laughs> I appreciate that I again like I mean and it's one of those things where again I can appreciate a Kubrick film and I do think that he is one of our greater filmmakers, but it's also hard to reconcile that thought with the thought of what everyone working with him had to go through to create the thing that I'm watching. It's very difficult for me. It's kind of that whole like, like not being able to separate art from the artist deal. Tyler, next point. I don't know. Um, I am. I like. I. I. I am obviously a very devout fan of horror, and as much as I enjoy many parts of the shining particularly visually and the influence it's had i don't there are just many other other classic horror movies that i find much more interesting story-wise and even if they don't have some of the visual acuity of a stanley kubrick film uh i just find them much more interesting like i'm very much a john carpenter stan and things like rosemary's baby and stuff like that i don't know like i it's probably one of the most famous horror movies ever but i think it comes down yeah i think it comes down to like an understanding of the genre um the shining to me very much reads like somebody really wanted to do their very best to make a horror movie and they followed everything to a t and even came up with some very interesting shots and new ideas but at the same time there there's just something missing from it in that it, i just to me, it doesn't fit with the rest of the genre pieces of that period. And I don't know if that's because Kubrick is more of an auteur than a horror director. He's ahead of his time. I mean, I don't even think that. I think a lot of his movies very much are a, a part of the time that they were created and outside of, like, the special effects, which, mm -hmm. again, wasn't even really him. It was, you know, the special effects studio. <laughs> so <laughs> The visual effects. Whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> No, even I, I enjoy I enjoyed watching the documentary just because I really enjoy seeing how they got all those shots, and it is kind of similar to Casablanca where it's watching it you're like oh wow every reference I've ever seen comes from this movie. All I could think of during when he's riding the tricycle in the hotel. Do you're you his calves had to have been incredible, right? That right. Like, <laughs> you might not remember this, Tyler, because I don't know. I know you didn't really have cable growing up, but Gabe might. Oh. Um, around Halloween on Cartoon Network, they used to do like animated spoofs of horror movies. Yeah, they did. And there was one that was like, uh, I can't remember which cartoon character it was off the top of my head. 
but he was like riding a tricycle and you ran into twins and then it would like cut away and be like happy halloween ha 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 and there was a scream one with daphne from scooby-doo and it was i don't know it was like it was super fun and i think it's funny to look back on that and realize like maybe i've always been the halloween ho where that was going <laughs> but, but like to your point with that like I think like what what hurts the movie a lot is the fact that I don't think it aged particularly well, especially with like some of its more like iconic moments. Know, like some that. of that camera work holds up really the camera well. Camera work is really good, but I think a lot of like the clothes in I don't, particular like, like, are really bad. Like, I don't technically, understand. it ages really well, but like I mean, there are some of these moments that I'm sure like the whole like here's Johnny thing was super like scary when it first happened, but now that it's just been like. <laughs> parodied and homage to death most of the jack nicholson moments it's just like oh jack nicholson he's he's nicholsoning it up also there's such a weird current of misogyny throughout this entire movie that it also makes it hard to explain i didn't i've seen this movie probably four or five times but i didn't even notice it until the second time that i watched it with tyler that when he's sitting at the bar talking to Lloyd, Jack refers to Wendy as the old cum dumpster upstairs. And that just like completely, I felt like I got kicked in the face. Because like even up to that point, that was just so brutally on the nose <laughs> and completely unnecessary. <laughs> like, And again, like it's this case of like where like, Book-wise, this is supposedly supposed to be like a decent guy fighting his demons, but you can't, you can't just say something like that. Just hates his wife the yeah. whole time, and it's so weird because yeah, at literally no point in this you don't movie, really have any emotional. I, I I don't feel a tremendous emotional stakes with anyone in this movie. Like you feel bad for Shelley Duvall. And I her literally kid, just but, feel bad for her the whole time. Yeah. I'm like, this sucks. Every part of this sucks for her. And, and the kid <laughs> isn't bad necessarily, but I don't think he's. that great either like he's fine i mean it probably stems from having no idea what's going on at any given moment (laughs) i also think it's a really depressing like commentary on society back then that like a plot point in that movie could be shelly duvall telling the doctor like oh yeah jack dislocated my son's shoulder and the doctor's just like whatever no her face like she looks pretty aghast and i think it's weird that we never hear like uh I feel like at some point in that movie, at least one person should have told Wendy that that was bad, like that that wasn't yeah. okay, and it wasn't just oh he just used too much force one time. Like that's one thing that's a lot more present in the book, and I don't know how you translate to the movie where you can't show inner monologues nearly as much, especially with so few characters. You can't even have like expository dialogue, yeah, as much Unless as some films can. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I, uh, I don't know. It, like, it suffers for that, but also it's hard to imagine how they would have added that without it being very stilted. The narration would have made it so chintzy. Oh, like, yeah. right. it would it would take it from it would take it from good with some flaws to completely cheesy. <laughs> how about The Shining with the Arrested Development narrator? <laughs> his at, name is ron howard okay he's a very established <laughs> filmmaker and you will respect him as such look at typewriter wendy <laughs> <laughs> well, 
um, which actually, I, this is just like a funny tidbit, but <laughs> oh uh, Stanley Kubrick, someone told him that you could tell the difference between the keys on the keyboard. So anytime you hear typing in the movie, some intern somewhere is actually typing out all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Some poor intern had to type out all those pages just so that Shelley Duvall could rifle through them. <laughs> and they're <laughs> all different. They all have like different uh, spacing and, you know, and indentation. You know that that was all like so completely like every and character. And all of, all of the dubs use different phrases. Are you serious? Yeah, like all of the different like foreign language versions of the film like all use like a local idiom. Do you have so, examples of that? Because I really want to hear some of them. That, makes, that can, makes sense. Give me like sense. five seconds to look oh it up. Oh my God. Do you know what that's exactly like? It's like in Captain America Civil War. Oh my God! <laughs> when he has this little notebook. <laughs> he has this little notebook of things to catch up on. And in every country, it's a different list of things pertaining to their culture. I swear to God. <laughs> that one was good. You can't even be mad about that. I feel like there are plenty of things you could have gone to. As a very viable comparison, and that you just forced that. I didn't force it. Gabe I have to lie down. I have to lie down. Gabe brought it up, and that's exactly the same thing. Oh my god! <laughs> but okay, so Captain yeah. America: Civil War may as well have been directed by Stanley Kubrick oh for how good god. it is. Anyway, Gabe. But yeah, so so to make those interns' lives even worse, each foreign language, uh, international version of the movie used a different idiom. So, like, in German, it's never put off till tomorrow what may be done today. French is, the actual saying is super stilted, but it's basically the French equivalent of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. <laughs> uh, Spanish is no matter how early you get up, you can't make the sun rise any sooner. But anyway, so, yeah, so those interns had to type out, like, a manuscript's worth of, like, five different idioms. That is absolutely amazing and makes me hate stanley kubrick even more than i already did oh my god my respect for him just went from grudging to even more grudging (laughs) we're at like yeah kayla my my respect for you went from (laughs) actually existing to uh now now anyway it kind of sounds like we are wrapping up a little bit so i'm dying Can, can we go around and state what our favorite crazy theory that's not real about this movie is God. Like what the movie symbolizes. Gabe, why don't why don't you just tell us about the room two thirty seventh? Actually, you know. Yeah, you're the only one that got to watch that, so tell us about that. Oh shit! So okay, uh, so I watched room two thirty seven after watching The Shining, and it's interesting. Like there are a lot of, and like these people, let me tell you, these people like are adamant that what they think of this movie is about is real so like there's one where i think kayla mentioned it earlier where it's supposedly all about like the native american genocide at the hands of like the settlers yeah and you know where that comes from because there's a navajo stained glass window at one point like there's that and like there's like a certain like brand of like baking soda in the pantry that uses that like it's kubrick so maybe no but yeah, there's no. one like that that Kubrick was the one who did the moon landing footage and this is like his confession about all of it. Because of specifically <laughs> just that sweater, like where is the rest of the connection? What is the or rest like, of it? I don't like there's the sweater and I guess like 
like the carpet like has something to do with it like i'd have to go back and watch it but it's ridiculous there's one that's like it's all about the nazis because like the year like like the like the numbers 42 show up a lot so like 1942 like world war ii i don't know it's really a bummer how nothing else happened in 1942 also, that 42 is definitely not at all ever like, okay. not included in Nazi symbolic. You know what? Like, We're going to take a hot minute for this uh, Telegraph article because I'm going to read to you the 10 best shining conspiracy theories. Oh, God. Do we, just read, do we have to read all 10 of them? Uh, number one, <clears throat> it's Stanley Kubrick's apology for faking the moon landings. Well, obviously, that's the actual true one. We already know about that, so moving on. Uh, the film is an indictment of American genocide. Uh, the hotel is hell. Um, you know, it's That's a little the on the nose. <laughs> yeah. It's about the Holocaust uh, because much of the film's soundtrack is made up of post-war compositions influenced by the horrors of the Second World War. The typewriter is German, and his deranged typing symbolizes the Third Reich's mechanical methods of killing and obsession with list-making. Okay, that's just ridiculous. That's such a stretch. My main, like... It's ex- about the Greek myth of the Minotaur. No, what? Just because there's a maze? It's a metaphor for the CIA mind control. MK Ultra. Oh God, this is the. It's all a dream. Fuck off. <laughs> God damn it. The if the Illuminati killed Kubrick. Wait, is this saying he predicted it? Oh my God, Jack Torrance is the devil. Man, these are boring. All right, so my main experience. Oh, number ten is, conspiracy oh God, theorists God. have too much time in their hands. That's just the proper one. Anyway, my main experience with conspiracy theories regarding The Shining is that while working at the video store that shall not be named when Room 237 came out, some dude bro came in and was trying to, like, school me on film knowledge. And I can't remember exactly the entire context of the situation because it was so mind-numbingly stupid that I blocked most of it out of my memory. But at one point he tried to tell me that The Shining was the only movie that Stanley Kubrick ever got to direct. And I just stared at him for a minute and tried to formulate a sentence on how to reply to something. Because the whole time he was kind of doing that thing where he's like, I'm a guy and I like this thing, so I clearly know more about it than you. And <laughs> Was this dude mansplaining fake conspiracy theories to you? I have no idea. He had like a beard and the giant glasses and it was truly, oh, no. if, if I didn't know was better, me? if I didn't what? know better, I honestly would have thought that it was performance art. So anyway, I stone facedly pull up Stanley Kubrick's IMDb page and just read off the titles to him, completely deadpan, check out his movie, hand it off to him. And I'm like, anyway, enjoy that because <laughs> it's not real. It was very triumphant. And that was how I knew that I could never take Stanley Kubrick fans seriously ever again for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's not a bad outlook. <laughs> this is what we're doing. But yeah. So I don't know, Tyler, do you have a conspiracy theory story about The Shining to talk about besides reading an article? Reading is very good. No, I know. You. I'm just saying, do you have any things. like other points to add? or? It just really sucks how everything about us going to space isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> All I can think of I was is really excited about going to space. The Portlandia so. skit about Battlestar Galactica where <laughs> where James almost goes, I've never been to space. Ever. And they're like, No, no, don't say that. 
But yeah. So, so now that we're completely off the rails. <laughs> right. I think overall, we can all agree that The Shining is a technically good movie that kind of doesn't hold up simply because it's been so oversaturated and over parodied. And because crazy people, like with many other things, have ruined it a little bit by trying to read too much into it. So let's get into trivia. Recommendations. Recommendations. <laughs> anyway, let's get into recommendations. Kayla, what movie would you recommend <laughs> following The Shining? Okay, so we actually talked about, I literally, I'm just... Full disclosure, I literally just thought of this right How now. How was I the first person to come up with a anyway, recommendation? Uh, I'm never prepared. So, we just talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the movie that I would recommend as a good follow-up and maybe slightly better with, like, pacing and tension and stuff, uh, Green Room is kind of that same claustrophobic... Sweat! Yeah, it's kind of got that same claustrophobic so tension. Hard. It has this really vivid imagery to deal with, and a lot of weird, gruesome stuff happens. It's so good. And it is fantastic at building tension and wondering how the characters will get out alive and if they will just succumb to the overwhelming horror of what is happening to them. And, yeah. It's also so good. It is so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, my recommendation is, so he ragged on Jack Nicholson a lot for being miscast in this movie and doing his Jack Nicholson thing. Uh, I want to go back to another old Jack Nicholson movie that we'll get to eventually, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ah, yes. It's a really good movie and probably the best Jack Nicholson performance I've ever seen. And as much as I don't love him in The Shining, uh, stuff like a movie like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest keeps me kind of respecting what he's doing here a little bit it's just really good and i can't wait to dive into that movie as well as the superior jack nicholson (laughs) performance hot take 2k16 (laughs) the movie where he actually gets to act he's better in you know i again still i'm not convinced that he's acting i think jack nicholson may secretly be an axe murderer somewhere (laughs) in his past Mm. hot take 2k16 (laughs) Gabe, uh, what is your recommendation? We are not doing that hashtag. <laughs> anyway, uh, my recommendation <laughs> is I was thinking of other Stephen King adaptations that maybe are not as well known as some of his bigger ones, you know, like this, the Shawshank Redemption stuff. So okay. my recommendation is... The greatest the... movie of all time? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> my recommendation is the 2007 adaptation of Stephen King's short story, The Mist which is one that is much yes. closer to the source material and the changes that happen the changes that are made actually like make sense to have changed and the ending of that movie will fuck you up for forever so I and, hate that movie an off <laughs> I was just going to say an off derided movie but really good so yeah that's my recommendation Ugh. yep yep <laughs> You know what? I'm with you on that one. I, As the host of this podcast, <laughs> put my stamp of approval on that. And I just want get to that say host cosign. Off of the topic, before we get off of the topic of Stephen King adaptations, I am just positing this. I would literally kill for HBO or IFC or something to do a mini series or fuck it, even like a full TV show of Salem's Lot. I would yeah, do anything that would be a to good have one. a good adaptation of Salem's Lot. I'm into it. It's absurd that we haven't had that yet. 
And it's even more absurd that Rob Lowe starred in a terrible version of one. Call your congressman and demand this. HBO. HBO. I am, I am literally I mean, you might be better off going for AMC. <laughs> no, I think I think <laughs> Rob Lowe played Ben Mears, if I'm thinking, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. But uh yes. So that's my last take on that. Hot take two K sixteen. Hashtag You are so out of the fort. <laughs> You are so far out of the fort that I don't think I can even hear you anymore. Anyway, continuing on. If you had a mic, I'd disconnect it right now. I don't, so we're sharing a mic, so you're stuck with me. Well, you're stuck with sharing your trivia now. All right. Uh, So my favorite trivia that I have come across for this movie. Is it the fake moon lander? No. Uh, So the original trailer for the movie and one of the most pivotal scenes in the movie itself is the scene where the elevators open and a flood of blood comes out and covers the entire hotel. Very gruesome, very shocking, like definitely an iconic moment in film history. And the original trailer for the movie was just that. However, when they originally sent it to the MPAA, they were like, dude, you literally cannot just have (laughs) a giant geyser of blood for your trailer are you kidding me it's cool so cooper comes back and he's like what are you talking about giant blood i no, it's rusty water so he convinced the mpaa that the trailer was rusty water flowing out of it is an old hotel even though it's clearly blood it's super blood this movie is really about the dangers of not properly maintaining your house Conspiracy theory number twelve. This movie's 12. about Flint. It's about the Flint water crisis. This movie's about Flint. But yeah, so yeah, that is probably honestly uh, my favorite. Like, out of all the things I know about Stanley Kubrick being a total troll, that's probably the best one. <laughs> I have a trivia too for this. Yes, please. Uh, so I read that I think it was in an interview that Jack Nicholson gave that obviously the "Here's Johnny" line uh, based on Johnny Carson's intro, like most probably the most iconic scene from the movie uh when it was improvised and stanley kubrick like didn't understand the reference so that take almost didn't make the movie that is hilarious i feel like kubrick movies just make a habit of trying to like piss off old veteran actors you have the uh gene kelly pretty much threatening to punch what's his face alex mcdormand i think after Clockwork Orange and when he did the singing in the rain thing, they met at a party and he was like, you're disgusting. Never talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, good stuff. Speaking of Stanley Kubrick movies, we will be returning to good old Stan Kubrick as he has seven movies on the IMDb 250. That is so ridiculous. Seven movies. Dr. Strangelove, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, The Shining... So, for Stanley Kubrick, you have Dr. Strangelove, uh, The Shining, mm-hmm. Paths of Glory, The Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Ah. Those are all in the top 100, by the way. Paths and then you have Glory. Barry Lyndon and The Killing. Actually, you know what? The Killing dropped off. Only six Stanley Kubrick movies. I apologize. Paths of Glory and Barry whatever I don't know anything about that's so weird barry linden how do i not know anything about those i don't know it's very out of character. we haven't covered them for the end you want to do barry linden next week no i don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Wow. So that's been a that's been all Stan Cubes and Steve King. <laughs> Stan Cubes and Steve King. <sighs> we sh- I feel like we should just do a Stan a Steve King episode. You know, just dedicate some time to Steve King. I mean, there I'm... are other Stephen King adaptations. On May want Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> well, besides you know, the, greatest the greatest movie, movie of, of all time, time. <laughs> Shawshank Redemption. Um, I yeah, forgot. So... I forgot that they were remaking that. They were remaking it. God. And not with Kerry Fukunaga. So what's even the point? So who even cares? Anyway, this has been an episode of Let the Right Films In. Let the Right Fashion. (laughs) This has been an episode. (laughs) This. I'm sorry if I made you angry. Um, I felt like we had a great discussion, though. Gabe, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, as always. It's a pleasure, as always. You should come visit soon. I will. Awesome. Tyler, you were here. You can't prove that. <laughs> All right, so it's my word against yours. Getting okay. into the things of the week, um, we are currently we teased this a while back and then didn't do it, and now we're doing it for real. <laughs> a special secret project coming up about Steve King. Not about Steve King. Stop it. That's very going to be really cool, and I'm really excited about it. We're all really excited about it. So. We'll do probably like a special announcement episode for that that is not related to a movie because I want to talk about it for real and not have it be wrapped up in like, you know, the back end of something Steve else. King? I don't even know really what I the thing is, but I'm excited for to it. God. Thank you, Gabe. That's very encouraging of you, unlike other people that are co-hosting <laughs> this podcast right now. If you want to be on this podcast and you have not yet been on the podcast or added to the honestly obscene amount of people that do want to be on the podcast, thank you to all of those people, by the way, um, you can email us. The email is ltrfipod at gmail.com. The more interactive and interesting way to get a hold of us is our Twitter page, which is also twitter.com slash ltrfipod. Our newly found Tumblr fame, because of Tyler's gift making, so. is on the rise. So if you want to get in on the ground floor of that, you can follow us at lettherightfilmsin.tumblr.com. I just, I'm just glad the Tumblr audience appreciates that the greatest movie of all time is all Jason Bourne movies. Sure. Anyway, um, we also have a Pinterest page and um, a Facebook page, which you can like. It is facebook.com slash lettherightfilmsin. Go figure. Um, you can actually, if you could please rate and review us on iTunes, we would super appreciate that. I checked and we actually do have one review on iTunes. I don't review this. I don't know. It was literally just like a random string of letters, but they said that they gave us five stars and said that we were a great podcast for cinephiles and people getting into movies. So, um, Thank you Thank to you, whoever did that <laughs> anonymous stranger. Steve the rest of you, King. the rest of you, fucking step it up. Give us some love. Come on. Steve King gave <laughs> us a review. <laughs> Steve King didn't stop. Stop talking about Steve King. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So uh, those are pretty much the main things that you can talk to us on or get a hold of us. Tyler also reviews movies on Letterboxd. It is letterboxd.com/slash Tyler Tells Tales. He ranks things and does reviews, and so if you want even more of his opinions on movies, you can read them there. Hi, that's me. And yeah, so in conclusion, thank you again for listening, and Jurassic World is a terrible movie and always will be. We'll see you at the parents' conference. Even if Shea Serrano says that it's a good movie. Shea Serrano gets a pass on even the Even the best of us have flaws. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
Please stop. Please stop. <laughs> I just want to point out that I just looked on Instagram and we watched Rocky Horror on June 10th to kick off Halloween. Mm-hmm. So we're only three days away from the start of Halloween, Tyler. Yeah. Caleb it's figured a mystery. It out. I maintain Not going to com- be able to do it. <laughs> Not going to be able to do it. I maintain that that was completely good and great. Do, 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 do. The other ones. I'm opening the page right now. It's really chill. Is that just every Stanley Kubrick movie? <laughs> How many movies did he direct? Like, I didn't even know that he had seven movies. I mean, most people do. I have seven movies. Do, do you? Yeah. That's amazing. The first thing that comes up when you search Stanley on IMDb is Stanley Tucci. What a delightful man. That's beautiful and much better. <laughs> if, if you want to get a hold of us, fucking add us. <laughs>